Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. When I was a child at the edge of the galaxy, I heard stories about a man who could forecast the future. But the story remained dark to me until many years later until it became my story. Until it became the only story. You're familiar with my work, psychohistory? Every mathematician has read your theory. It's not a theory. It's the future of mankind expressed in numbers. And the Empire won't like the future I predict. History is littered with charlatans and false messiahs. We should kill them. We can murder the man, but what about the movement, brother? Martyrs tend to have a long half-life. His math was right. The Empire is dying. Wars will be endless. <laughs> Thousand worlds reduced to cinders. Change is frightening especially to those in power. But we can soften the fall. So what's the plan? Many years from now, if humanity is to climb from the ashes, the coming generations will need the knowledge to build upon a foundation. We are now staring down a barrel of a crisis. We're not turning around now. not a prelude to Halloween, though it could be. Those were actually scenes from Isaac Asimov's sci-fi classic Foundation, reimagined in a miniseries, which will be the subject of Bro on the global television beat and much more in his critique of this fall's TV preview season coming up. But first... Hi, this is Jack Shalom. This is about digression. This this little segment started six years ago as a written piece and somehow I'm circling back to it now. And we're we're coming up on Halloween, which is a, a day where we hide ourselves, change our identities, have secret identities like Superman. In other words, we refuse to be what others see us as. We make things a little bit harder for those who try to capture us in a word, a phrase, a a box, a category, an image. Like Harry Houdini, I want to be an escape artist from the expectations of others. And all cultures have this kind of holiday where people take on new identities and the normal restraints of society are loosened for a time carnivals and festivals and celebrations, Mardi Gras, and they usually occur about once a year. They usually start out as a folk holiday. They're the holidays of the peasants, the workers, the poor, the the despised, which is the majority of us, where one day, at least, we're allowed to be something else, to knock us off the path we're on. But what path? As the poet said, there is no path. You must make the path. There's something about a modern person, however, that wants a straight path, a straight line, a ruler, but nothing is ever straight in nature. Even the crow follows the curvature of the earth, and there are no right angles either perfect corners. It's all curves and loops and self-replication in nature at different levels. There are layers of patterns bleeding into each other over and under. 
there's repetition and redundancy because redundancy is the master strategy to survive. The rule of evolution is she who can adapt most cunningly to the changing circumstances is she who survives. But who knows what essential tool you'll need in the future, what quality you'll need. The non-essential today may well be what you need tomorrow. But I digress. To return to my theme, this is an essay on digression. But why do I return? I, I keep wanting that straight line. Relentlessly, I pursue it. The efficient. Why do I value this? Now, why am I editing my thoughts right now? Why will I be editing this piece tonight and on the computer? What, whatever happened to times past, the long, long digression-filled epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey, or the endless verses to Barbary Allen, whose plot all could have been told in one sentence, but they go on and on and on. And I, I wonder if that taste for the straight, clean line is a result of the push to capitalism. We want all the forces to be working in the same direction, churning out the standardized commodity for sale. And even as capitalism is developing, in the 15th century, there's this Italian playwright named Tresino who writes this essay about playwriting, about how to write a play, the right way to write a play. And he misquotes Aristotle as saying that plays should follow the three unities of time, place, and action. He says they should be about one thing which happens in one place in a 24-hour period and no longer. Wow. David Mamet's stated agreement with these unities notwithstanding, could anything have been more wrong and uncreative? And the, the French for a long period of time followed those rules and produced some of the most undramatic pieces of drama to ever torture a theater history grad student. Thankfully, some other writers had other ideas. Shakespeare, even as he marched towards the new world order at the beginning of capitalism, was also breaking with it. No Frenchman he, no unities of time, place, and circumstance for him. The world contains multitudes, he protested with his plays. We all have a multitude of identities, and it all can be put on stage at once. Time be damned. Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest invention of heaven. The story is told, and if I, as an author, and the listener know how it's going to end before it begins, then what's the point? I, I go for a walk and I decide today I'm gonna take another way, because I'm tired. I'm tired of the old way. Yeah, it's true I have in my hand a note to myself to pick up three avocados and that little spritzer thing for the faucet, the broken part of it is rattling around in my pocket because I have to take it with me because I can't remember a damn thing. Otherwise, I'll forget to change it and buy the thing. My father used to do a lot of bonding with me walking together to the pharmacy in order to buy a new tube of toothpaste. And I claim virtue for myself walking as I also once had a wonderful walk in Prospect Park with a group of people led by the author and activist Grace Paley. I don't remember what the occasion was, but she was a lovely woman, passionate, a mensch. And reading Grace Paley, I know that I always felt more human because her stories were never the straight line. The straight line is the way of physics, but not the way of biology and humans. The straight line is the way of the billiard ball, the path it takes, the way of the train leaving from city A at a speed of 90 miles an hour while one hour later another train leaves in the opposite direction from city B at a speed of 49 miles an hour. In how many hours student will they meet? But how could you answer that if you don't know if it's an assignment or an assignation. 
Is the person in city A having an affair with the person in city B? And, and do their spouses know? Does the person in city A know that the person in city B has lost the sweater that person A gave as a present and the resulting shame that person B has as they put on a different colored sweater altogether and hopes that person A doesn't notice it? How come they never tell you the crucial pieces of information in the algebra books? Kick a billiard ball with a force of two newtons at an angle of 45 degrees, and we can predict what will happen. Kick a boy, and we have no idea at all what will happen. Grace in her story, may I, may I call Miss Paley Grace? Grace in her story, conversation with my father, tells her father that she doesn't know how to tell stories in the direct way. One sentence kicks the cat, and who knows where the story will go. If we're to write and speak as if we were alive, then we can't know where we will end up. Remember J.D. Salinger's Holden Caulfield and the Catcher in the Rye? Holden tells about a boy in his public speaking class who couldn't stay on topic, and any time that the boy digressed, the rest of the class was supposed to yell out, Digression! And the poor boy became unhinged by it. Holden couldn't name it, but he knew that this was inhumanity. He thought that the boy's digressions were the best thing about his talking. My life is a digression in the story of the earth. My life is a digression in other people's stories. We want to aim at the stars and then someone kicks us in the kishkas. Paho, zoom to the moon. We didn't know that was going to be our trajectory. Welcome to Storyland. Samuel Beckett, uh, Joseph Heller, Philip Roth, Grace Paley, they're so filled with the digression of life in their novels that each page has to be turned to find out how life develops. I want somehow to come back to Halloween, to turn my curve into a circle, to close the loop. When I was six years old on a chilly Halloween evening, autumn leaves crunching under me, my mother took me to the next door neighbor's door to trick or treat and then because I wanted to be a big boy and do it alone she hid behind a tree while I knocked on the neighbor's door in costume and when I came back with my bag of candy I couldn't find her I was afraid she was gone but then she popped out from behind the tree and she was still there her blue scarf and red and black wool coat she hadn't disappeared she had waited for me And I knew at that moment that she loved me. She died in this past year, and that is one of the things I remember most about her. Tonight, at 12.23, which it is now, I digress. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. Since you went away, the days grow long, and soon I'll hear old winter's song. But I miss you. And the music you've been listening to is from Frédéric Lerdon 
and Nat King Cole. And if you're in the New York City area, we're giving away a couple of pairs of listener tickets to the just reopened Broadway theaters here for Aladdin and the Lion King. We only have a few tickets, so we'll have a drawing to attend some shows of your choice. And you can enter that drawing by sending in your name and email address to the radio goddess at gmail.com. That's the radio goddess at gmail.com. And now on Arts Express, musician Rick Wakeman of Yes fame phones in from the UK to talk about his latest US tour. But first, we'll hear a little of a vintage Yes classic. I've seen all good people turn their heads each day So satisfied I'm on my way I've seen all good people turn their heads each day So satisfied I'm on my way The adoring thing about Rick Wakeman is he refuses to go away. As the prolific musician relates, recalling a journalist's remarks about him during this conversation, phoning into the show from the UK. Wakeman, who rose to prominence with the rock band Yes and across these many decades, creating solo concert album music inspired by Jules Verne, King Arthur, the Six Wives of Henry VIII, Beowulf, and 1984, will also talk about his musical collaboration through the years with David Bowie and Cat Stevens and some unusual encounters with Salvador Dali and the most notorious train robber in British history, Ronnie Biggs. Apologies, there was a bit of a technical issue. I'm crap with technology, don't worry about it, I'm rubbish. (laughs) Okay, well welcome to the show. Thank you. Please tell the listeners, what is your current U.S. tour all about? Uh, this particular tour, it started really in England, the, the basis of it, oh, uh, quite a few years ago, t- um, at least 15 plus years ago, when um, as there was a series in, in England on the television called Grumpy Old Men, and it was hugely successful. And it was basically uh, a, a lot of middle-aged men in, who were uh, sort of in the public eye and on TV a lot, 
who just basically moaned about everything that drove them mad. <laughs> and the series was hugely successful. It was the number one series in, in, in England, and I was lucky enough to be on every single program. Mm. So I suddenly became known as the grumpy old man, grumpy old rock star. <laughs> and uh, now I did a couple of books called One Grumpy Old Rock Star and another one called Further Adventures of a Grumpy Old Rock Star. And then I did a tour which was based on music that from people that I'd been involved with over the years, in, in, uh, not just my own stuff, but uh, stuff with Yes and uh, David Bowie and Cat Stevens uh, and other people like that. And in between, telling ridiculous, anecdotal, grumpy stories. Mm. Uh, and it was it was really successful in the UK, and I did uh, about four or five tours of it. And then my... Um, my promoter agent over over here in America happened to be in England and he came to one of the shows and he said, you have got to bring this to America. Mm. And I said, well, you're my agent. That's up to you. Mm. So he did. And we did about um, oh, two, three years ago, we did the, the Grumpy Old Rockstar tour, which was great fun. I really, really enjoyed it. And uh, then um, he, he said, look, we've got to do another one. And I said, okay. So we were going to do Grumpy Old Rock style, a second series kind of thing. And then, uh, of course, the dreaded pandemic hit and the lockdowns and everything. And we had to postpone the tour four times. Mm. And so in the end, I said, when we finally said, look, it's going to happen. Uh, and it's going to happen in 2021 in, in uh, October. And I said, okay, listen, we've had so many cancellations. I don't want to call it the grumpy old rock star anymore. Show. I want to call it the even grumpier. Because <laughs> with all of the cancel cancellations, I'm now even grumpier than I was in the first place. So hence it became the, the even grumpier rock star show, which is made up, as I say, of lots of music that I've been involved with over the years, um, plus um, a suitable selection of ridiculously silly stories. And you've survived and flourished as a musician for over half a century, while so many others have come and gone. What would you say it is about your music that endures? Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, do you know, I honestly don't know. I think, um, I, 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 I think it's possibly you have to go back a few years to answer that question because there was a period of time in the 1980s in particular when the sort of music that I do, and many others did at the time, uh, was uh, incredibly unpopular, shall we say. Uh, we were totally not the flavour of the month. In fact, you you would have had you know, more chance of, of the Pope putting a condom machine in the Vatican than you would have gotten any of our music played on, on the radio. Yeah. And it was just... Uh, but there was one journalist in a, it's about 1989 um, who I knew, and... Uh, he just wrote an article in, in, a, in a, a national newspaper, and he just said, uh, well, um, I, I, I just had a record that had done reasonably well, funny enough, in spite of all of that. And he said, the enduring thing about Rick Waitman is, it, it doesn't matter whatever happens, he refuses to go away. <laughs> and I think that's, that's maybe why, if you don't go away, you know, I suppose... People have to accept that, that you're here. I think the truth is, I just, I absolutely love what I do, yeah. uh, and I, I believe in what I do, and I always, I, I always do my best. I, you know, I don't expect everybody in the world to like what I do, um, but uh, I can always turn around, hold my head up, and say, "Listen, that, that I've done my best, and, it, and it's also uh, what I really believe in." Mm. And what are your memories of David Bowie and creating music with him? Oh, David was wonderful. I first met him in 1968, and uh, apart from recording quite a lot with him um, and having uh, learning such a lot from him and his producers, uh, Tony Visconti, Gus Dargen, Ken Scott, great guys, and and David was just uh, an amazing man. And we and apart from all working with him in the studio, and he was the best person I ever worked with in the studio. He was so together with everything how he wanted to work. Um, but also, we ended up as neighbours uh, in the late 70s, 76 to 1980. Uh, we were neighbours in Switzerland, and we spent, uh, when, we, when either of us were not touring, we spent a lot of time. We used to meet in a little club in Montreux called the Museum Club, uh, where we would put the world to rights. Um, 
And it was lovely because, uh, you know, I could say I knew David both as a musician and a friend. Hmm. Now, you once threw a strangely attired man off the stage while you were performing, and you found out later that he was Salvador Dali. What can you say about that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. uh, Well, I didn't know who he was (laughs) at the time. This is back in 1970. Um, and uh, it was we were in Paris and I was doing a show with the Straubs and he he, he wandered on the stage and uh, he come uh, it, was, it was who the hell was, who the hell was this I mean, uh-huh. everybody knew his, everybody knew his name but they didn't know what he looked like and uh, he he had a walking stick which he was waving at the at the audience it was in a circus, would you believe? We were playing in a circus. Mm. Um, it, it's, it, it was ridiculous, really. And I was trying to do a little piano solo, and he was more interested in waving his stick about. So uh, I was waiting for somebody to kindly remove him off the stage, but nobody did came along and did it, so I thought, well, I'll do it. Um, so uh, I helped him. Shall we say I helped him off the stage, not quite in the way that he was expecting to leave. And are there any other strange experiences like that in your music career? Oh, gosh, there's hundreds of them, really, I suppose. <laughs> I've, always had, I've always had some strange things. I mean, I remember... I, I mean, somebody once said to me, nothing never normal happens to you. I said, no. <laughs> I remember the, the first time I went to Brazil, um, I got off the plane, uh, and I wasn't met by the promoter. I was met by a guy called Ronnie Biggs, who was one of the great train robbers in England. Uh uh, which was a, the biggest and most famous uh, robbery in English history, really, the Great Train Robbery. And uh, he met me at the bottom of, of the steps of the plane and said, welcome to Brazil. I thought, this is weird. I was meant to be being met by the British consulate in Brazil, <laughs> but here I'm being met by a train robber. <laughs> yeah, I, I, lots of lovely weird things happened to me. And you're currently working on composing music, according to IMDb, for the film The Ultimate Weapon, described as U.S. and British weapons dealers competing against each other for a government arms contract. What is that all about, and why did you want to be part of it? I have absolutely no idea. That's the first I've ever heard about it. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's absolute news to me. Well, are you working on any films right now? Um, no. Um, I love doing films, but I haven't, uh, I suppose because of the pandemic and various things, I haven't been offered a film for quite some time now, um, which is a shame because I love doing films. Uh, But this one is is total news to me, I have to be honest. And anything else you're working on right now? Yeah, I'm working on, uh, uh, Tim Rice and I have been working together on putting a a musical together. Tim Tim Rice and I Mm. are great friends and we've always said that when the right projects come along, we will do something. We did a project uh, based on George Orwell's 1984, way back in the 1980s, but we're working on a new uh, musical, but it's obviously it's been put on hold for nearly two years because we've not been allowed to work together in the same room. Um, so mm. that, that's, um, you know, when the beginning of next year, after this American tour and after my UK uh, Christmas tour, we're going to get together and just get everything going back going again. Hmm. Now, quite a few of your compositions are inspired by real events, historical figures, and mythology. Why do those inspire you musically? They do. You're quite right. But I honestly, I don't know why. I just find <laughs> it exciting, Roger. I find real people exciting. I find real events. Uh, fascinating and exciting and uh, um, and those are what really I suppose inspire me to, to you know to write uh, I, I'm not very good at just sitting down going oh today I'm going to write a piece of music it doesn't work like that to me it'll be something that might happen um, I did an album recently called The Red Planet it's all about Mars and I've got lots of friends at, at NASA and I've got lots of uh, astronaut friends and uh, and we were talking about that the, they were sending up uh, more more uh, visits to Mars to, because they just felt there was much more to Mars than people had ever realised. And that fascinated me, the fact that, you know, a few billion years ago, 
uh, Mars wasn't a red planet, it was a blue planet. It was, mm. it was very much like uh, the Earth. Um, and it, I just found that very fascinating. And then suddenly you get musical ideas, you start writing them down and, and you put an album together. Um, and, and that's what really happens to me. It's, it's, it's people and events and history um, or even ideas about the future. They, those are things that inspire me to write, to write music. And what about the pandemic over there in the UK and the economic crisis? Has it had an impact on you or your music? pandemic has just been a, a nightmare. Um, I mean, the, on many downsides, uh, I, uh, I find it, it's been difficult, no concerts, you can't work with other musicians, it's all very well doing things online, uh, but it's not the same as being in the same room as people and working yeah. and playing things and putting, it to, putting stuff together. I found that extremely difficult. Um, I've lost 19 friends to COVID. Oh, uh, which which is just uh, heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, it's that's been that's been terrible. I've I've had friends lose their businesses, their houses, uh, so much because of it. Um, I've been doing some stuff uh, within the National Health Service in in England. Where I, I've been going at Christmas because no one's been allowed in hospitals. But I've had mm-hmm. a special dispensation. I go in. You know, masked up and everything, and I, I, you know, I got to go there and, and play the piano for the, you know, for the nurses and the, ah. and the doctors, which I've, I've really enjoyed. But speaking to some of the nurses and and doctors, <coughs> obviously, safe distances or whatever. It's, it's. I mean, they they've actually been through hell, you know. So that's been really tough. Um, has there been a good side to it? Hmm. Um, the good side will be if, if we learn from it. That's the only good side that can, can happen, really. Uh, I've missed playing. I've missed um, people. I've missed seeing friends. I've, I've, it's just it's uh, it's just been extremely difficult. But I appreciate it's been more difficult for for other people sometimes. And uh, I just I don't know. It's it's I've not found it inspiring to write. Um, in any way, because I don't like to write. I'm not a, a, what I call a morbid writer. I mm. like to write about, you know, things that I will either make people think or put a smile on their face. Mm. Um, I think it'll, once the whole COVID thing has died down, which I still think will be another couple of years, um, I think uh, then we can start looking at it. And I just hope that governments around the world start looking at it as to why it happened. Mm. and to just to absolutely make sure that it can't happen again. And if it does, we're ready for it. And what about the energy crisis going on in the UK? And are you able to get around with enough gas? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's all been a bit a, a bit exaggerated, I think. I mean, the, yes, there's, there's been queues at, uh, at the gas stations. Um, but the reason there's been queues at gas stations is, is in, in the UK, it's a known fact that most people never have less, sorry, more than a half a tank full of gas. It's mm-hmm. normally between a quarter and half full, and they use it for what they want. And, and suddenly, because um, there was this huge panic, everybody went to fill their tanks up. Mm. And, it, and so subsequently, of course, you, that's the equivalent of putting twice as many vehicles on the road that there already is. So, yeah, there was a bit, a bit of a panic initially, but I, I've got to be honest, I've not had any trouble getting getting gas. Yeah, I might have, instead of being you know, third in the queue of, 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 of cars at the gas station, I, I might have been fifth or something, but I've not had any, any trouble at all. Uh, and the economic crisis, um, you know, I, I've, I've heard this reported, but I don't really see it any different from what it what life has always been. I mean, there's always going to be different crises. I mean, we're, we're, we're told there's a, a shortage of, of heavy goods vehicle drivers mm. uh, uh, because of uh, uh, a lot of the Eastern European drivers aren't coming in. Um, but, you know, I find that sort of hard to believe a bit because uh, they offered special exemptions to um, foreign drivers to come in and drive uh, and they offered, I think it was a thousand or even two thousand jobs at uh, 
uh, increased money and increased opportunities, and I think 120 took it up. So it's, it's, there's a, a lot of um, sort of strange reporting going on mm. that I don't think is quite as, uh, uh, as, as accurate as maybe, if you know what I mean. And any last word on your tour? I'm just really looking forward to getting out and playing again and standing on a stage and looking out and seeing people. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a people person. I love people. Mm. Um, my late father used to say to me, everybody, remember that everybody walking towards you has got a story to tell. And the chances are it's more interesting than anything you've got to tell. And I've met so many interesting people over the years. And it's... it's uh, and I love meeting people at shows. It's going to be a little bit trickier this time round because, of course, they, uh, we're, we're being very, very careful with, uh, with the meet and greets for, for the safety of people coming mm. along. Uh, and that's all, that's all you can do. But I'm, I'm a great believer is that life has to go on. Um, and all through the pandemic, um, I mean, I was classed in England as, as, vulnerable, as a vulnerable person because I, you know, I've got diabetes too, although that's... Mm. But basically gone now, and I've got that. But they, uh, um, but we just followed the rules. We were very careful, uh, and uh, my wife and I, with everything that we did, and and tried to be sensible and careful. And I've worked on the principle that if you do that, that's fine. And the, the main way you can do that is remember everything you do. Make sure that you think about the consequences to others. So uh, we, you know, we've been. We'd like to think we've been pretty careful, but I, I can't, you know, life can't stop. It has to go on. Hmm. And with your very long and distinguished career, when Rick Wakeman looks in the mirror, what does he see? I see, uh, <laughs> I see an, uh, an aging old man. I see, I see, uh, I see somebody who needs a shave and really who needs. Um, um, I don't really look at myself in the physical, physical being anymore, because uh, as you get older, you know, things that used to work don't work. Things your eyesight gets worse. You, you know, you, it's, it's harder to get rid of weight. You know, all that. You say, well, hold on a minute. You know, what's what's important to me? The answer is my, my family. My, uh, I've got quite a few rescue animals. My rescue animals. My family. Obviously, my wife, number one, and my music. So. Uh, the rest can all look after itself. Okay. Thank you, Rick Wakeman, for calling into our show. Thank you very much. <laughs> really appreciate it. Bye-bye. information about Rick Wakeman's U.S. tour is online at rwcc.com. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with Bro on the Global Television Beat. Arts Express Paris correspondent Professor Dennis Bro dissects a preview of this fall's TV season from Black Radicalism to The Crown meets Star Trek or British Royals in Space. Under the fall of the British Empire, as the American empire is itself in the process of crashing, and as both sides of the Atlantic lionize an institution which has long surpassed its sell-by date. With connections to Rear Window, High Noon, 310 to Yuma, Required Trapdoors, and shadowy cult villains, in this case the Masons. This is Bro on the Global Television Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode... Fall Global Series Preview, From Black Radicalism to British Royals in Space. 
At this point, most serious serial TV has moved online, where there's no traditional fall TV season, that being a thing of the past, a relic of, what did your parents used to call it? Oh yeah, network TV, that quirky period of television history, which is actually still the majority of television history, where three behemoths strolled across the TV landscape forever locked in a death grip with each other that mostly yielded copies of whatever was the latest hit on the other channel. Yet another nail was driven into the coffin of what was still free television, as opposed to boutique pay subscriber television, at this year's Emmys, when for the first time Netflix outdueled even pay cable TV favorite HBO by a margin of 44 to 19, a score that would be labeled a rout on a football field. In addition, the streamers, supposedly free of network TV restrictions, have initiated what amounts to their own fall subscription drive, with each attempting to outdo the other in big special event series that also brand the company. There's Apple TV Plus's celebration of the wonder of technology within a declining empire in Isaac Asimov's sci-fi classic Foundation. The conservative company Comcast Peacock with a reactionary war on terror overlay on Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol. And Amazon with a fourth and last season of David E. Kelly's Goliath, which rightfully and insightfully attacks the greed and murderousness of drug companies, while also nicely tilting the spotlight away from Jeff Bezos and Amazon. All, however, fail to match the splendor of the remake of a network TV sitcom, The Wonder Years, on the terrestrial channel ABC owned by Disney and part of its diverse family strategy, this time with a black family and set in the revolutionary period of 1968. It's hard to overestimate the contribution this remake of the popular series, which began in the late 80s and also was set in the 60s, makes to a deepening and politicization of this standard sitcom. Don Cheadle's voiceover narration begins the episode as we watch the 12-year-old Dean Williams peddling home in a middle-class post-segregationist black neighborhood recounting the talk, not about sex, as might be the topic of the original series about a would-be white writer, but about how to behave in a black boy's first encounter with the police. The somewhat nerdy Dean, a la Everybody Hates Chris, is positioned in typical Malcolm in the Middle sitcom mode between an athlete older brother and a beautiful popular debutante sister, feeling he will never live up to either. However, the twist here is that he is also positioned between them politically, with his absent brother away in Vietnam and his sister becoming radicalized, with a photo dropping out of her high school textbook showing her with a gun in a Patty Hearst pose and choosing, after a momentous event which rocks the family, Eldridge Cleaver's soul on ice over her SAT prep manual. Also emphasized is that post-segregationist America is no less racist. A wonderfully telling scene has Dean and his black and Jewish friends at the school water cooler, which a white girl and boy then avoid. In a nod to female emancipation, black style, Dean is about to try to rescue his crush, the girl he adores, from an aggressive male bully when she instead grabs the bully around the neck and makes him cry uncle. The one stutter step and what is a near-perfect 21-minute script by sitcom veteran Saladin K. Patterson has, in the final moment, Dean expressing anger, not at the further disenfranchisement and futility of a political assassination, but at seeing his crush with another boy. The sequence is scored to the fifth dimensions, a change is going to come, and it's hoped the show will continue to integrate the social agenda with the typical coming-of-age story in a way that makes this series a new take on the old sitcom formula, surpassing the original and aided and abetted by the superb direction of the 80s Wonder Years child actor, Fred Savage. There's a lot of moralizing about the savage viciousness of drug companies such as Purdue Pharma, perpetuator of the opioid crisis, in season four and the final season of Amazon's Goliath. All warranted, but perhaps also by comparison shining a better light on less murderous worker gougers, such as the show's parent company, which this week was revealed has carried its over-exploitation of its employees into Amazon's space division as well. Nevertheless, this is an extraordinary final season that does a superb job of wrapping up this series about a self-destructive alcoholic lawyer, Billy Bob Thornton, in one of his greatest roles who also happens to be a brilliant legal mind and who enjoys sticking it to corporations. The series does not focus on the effects of what amounts to OxyContin peddling on an unwitting population, though a lead lawyer's daughter has died from becoming addicted, but rather on an underreported aspect of the crisis, the way lawyers on both sides collude to fix a settlement price that amounts to mere peanuts for the companies involved, and in that way prevents the most damning aspects of company policy from ever emerging in court. Because there is so little government regulation, 
A main point that emerges is that the companies do their own drug testing, which federal regulators then approve. These companies more than ever fear a jury trial where they will be dragged before the public. And Billy, the recalcitrant lawyer, is appalled that over the last decades, the amount of civil suits that have gone to court where companies must face the public have declined from 20 to 2%. Settlement and not airing the company's dirty linen is clearly a priority. There's an initial whistleblower who describes what is now common knowledge, the way the drug companies champion sales to doctors, including a lavish musical production number, extolling the drug's pain-killing virtues. But again, this is public knowledge and well covered, especially so in Alex Gibney's two-part series, Crime of the Century, part one focusing on drug company creation of Oxycontin, and part two on creation of its even more dangerous cousin, fentanyl. What is unique here is the show's late reveal, that the company knew all along about the addictive quality and rather than run from it, embraced that aspect of the drug to further its profits, in much the same way as the tobacco industry, where the smoking gun was that the industry knew all along about the harmful and addictive aspects of cigarettes and cultivated those qualities. The series was created by David E. Kelly, known for his stunning courtroom surprises, and the finale, under the capable hands of showrunner Lawrence Trilling, does not disappoint, with Billy struck off the case and a stunning summary by a surprise witness sinking the Purdue Pharma and Sackler stand-in company, Zacks, whose CEO, Shyster, enacted by J.K. Simmons, plays for his evil off his best-known television role as the irresolute spokesman for Farmers Insurance, a metacasting that impugns and compounds both real and fictional companies. Billy says of Zacks, his most damning indictment of the drug companies as a whole, He's not in the pain relief business. He's in the addiction business. The show also makes cinematic use of San Francisco with its foggy, shadowy, menacing exteriors where everyone is monitored and its long-take corporate interiors and lavish camera work that is the lush opposite of disjointed life on the streets. It references Rear Window, Chinatown, and directly quotes in Billy's fantasy High Noon and 310 to Yuma while also being an acting compendium, with Billy Bob Thornton facing off in a multitude of scenes with his acting mentor, Bruce Stern. Peacock's Splashy Fall Entry is an adaptation of the Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown's The Lost Symbol, which does contain the Dan Brown required trapdoors, hieroglyphic imprints, and shadowy cult villains, in this case the Masons. These old reliables work well enough. The problems are twofold. First, Comcast's overlay of the now-outmoded, if ever-relevant, war on terror on these shenanigans. The series opens with a reverse Abu Jarab, with Muslims beating an American prisoner in a Turkish jail, with casts of Paul over the series, which has never quite dissipated, which feels like an extraneous and conservative sheen on the plot. Brown's plots, as in the Da Vinci Code, do sometimes engage Christian symbiology as faults, with that novel's reveal about the true nature of Jesus and Magdalene's relationship, and that critique here is overshadowed by the show's anti-Arab overtones. The second problem is the actor Ashley Zuckerman playing young Robert Langdon. He's no young Sherlock Holmes. In a decision to turn back the clock, Brown is famous for his papier-mâché characters, who are simply ciphers who decode one symbol and then rush to the next with a breathless pace carrying the story. Even so, this Langdon is extraordinarily lifeless, affectless, boring, without a trace of humor. At least Tom Hanks in the two films had a kind of smarmy everyman morality that you could either love or hate. I hated it. But here, the writers completely abandon their job of fleshing out this lifeless Harvard quasi-archaeologist character who, in contrast, makes Indiana Jones seem like Hamlet, or in the latest iteration, Lear. The least successful and the silliest of the major fall series is Apple TV's Foundation, based on the Isaac Asimov trilogy about a future world where numbers, i.e. algorithms, reign supreme. The Empire has become a kind of cloned DuPont dynasty, inbred, self-perpetuating, decaying, and under attack, not by actual rebels who want to overthrow the imperial reign, but by mathematicians who predict the Empire will collapse in five centuries, not much of a prediction, and then move to try to preserve it and civilization against the self-destructive urges of its inbred leaders. What better advertisement for Apple, a Silicon Valley company par excellence, which presents itself as outflanking government in both managing the future and preserving the integrity of its users. The rebel girl from a planet that resembles Africa chants 86,983,791, which flattens it out into boring numerology, rents 525,600 minutes in seasons of love. The phony British Empire overlay, this is the crown meets Star Trek or royals in space, is heavy-handed with the ultimate 
imperial villain called Empire, scene chewing in a kind of third-rate Loki. A word about the crown. Yuck. The success of this Emmy darling in British and U.S. fetish, with two actresses winning successively for playing various stages of the life of Queen Elizabeth, can probably be best explained as Elizabeth's grace under fire, meaning her bearing up under the fall of the British Empire, as the American Empire is itself in the process of crashing, and as both sides of the Atlantic lionize an institution which has long surpassed its sell-by date and which owns half the land in the United Kingdom, while working-class tendencies deteriorate and homelessness abounds, and with its American royal equivalent being Bill Gates, who now owns half of the country's farmland. The series does retain some of Asimov's reverence for science, but often the special effects are gimmicky and less than meets the eye. As the young African, Gal Dornick, descends to the imperial planet of Trantor, she looks out the window and says, this is incredible. We then see what she sees, which is a kind of standard CGI and miniature floating city, not much improved technically over Fritz Lang's metropolis. She's then told as she ascends that this part is great. And again, the effects don't match the verbal buildup. We should be naturally gasping from the visual splendor, not repeatedly having to be told or ordered to marvel at it. It all adds up to a sort of 2001 A Space Odyssey, the podcast. Finally, a 9-11 terrorist-type attack on the Empire, with towers collapsing, does not have the effect of, say, the pilot of Battlestar Galactica, with everyone having to flee the planet. Again, the main problem here is the ambivalence about preserving what amounts to a fascist empire, the same empire Apple is both building and helping to undercut as it moves itself to outflank all forms of government as it defines civilization, not as culture, but as algorithms. This is Bro. On the global television beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.